0: I'm not seeking penance for what I've done, Father. I'm asking for forgiveness for what I'm about to do. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Povey. And today we're going to talk about Daredevil here on Genreless. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of GenreList, where we are currently talking about Disney plus live action superheroes. I think it's the most succinct way to describe what we're doing right now. Well,
1: unless we find a different way to do it next time. Right. <laughs> at,
0: at this exact moment, that's when my brain is just <laughs> saying, I cannot guarantee this will last even through this episode, to be honest.
1: But we're here to talk about the best Disney plus live action television show.
0: No, we talked about Agent Carter last week. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into Daredevil, because this is the show that was originally on Netflix and then has since migrated to Disney+. I want to talk about Daredevil as a comic book character a little bit because as a disabled person, I have very complicated feelings about Daredevil. And I feel like I should unpack them at the start because it will color a lot of what I'm about to talk about today. So back in the 60s one of the things that Stanley was actually very passionate about was trying to from a very limited white man 60s perspective increase the diversity of superhero characters. And so he is part of the reason why we have uh, like uh, Professor Xavier in a wheelchair and why we have Daredevil. The problem with Daredevil As he is sometimes written in the comics, not always, sometimes written in the comics, is that he is blind. He is legitimately blind. However, he has all these superpowers like super hearing and senses and whatnot that effectively erases disability. To the point where a lot of the shtick of early Daredevil, and a fair amount of Daredevil as a whole, is that a lot of other characters don't realize he isn't sighted. Um, and so it's like, that's his secret identity. is like, oh, well, because of my secret powers, people don't realize that I'm blind and therefore would never suspect that this blind lawyer is actually me. So there's a lot about that, 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 that bothers me because it, it plays into two kind of problematic disability tropes. One of which is that if disability is erased, that is positive. And also that. Disability in one area makes you super powerful in another area, which, boy, I wish that was true, um, but that's, it's not. Now, over the years, much like I, I talked about in Speechless with Hawkeye, the other writers have, have taken this and have, have dug more into it, and this version of Daredevil, from that perspective, I actually do like because – Matt Murdock's blindness is much more of a factor and there's a lot of thought in this first season about how his blindness affects day to day life. His powers are not so amped up that he can just be a sighted person. You know, there's little nuances in in the, in the choreography, in the writing to where his blindness is still a factor, even though he has these abilities. But then if you contrast it to, this is a spoiler for She-Hulk, but by the time this goes live, it'll been several weeks. So if you, don't want to just skip ahead like about five minutes, but in the latest episode of She-Hulk, the second to last episode, Daredevil shows up and he has a much more powered up version of Daredevil, much more comic accurate. And he's making jokes about the fact that he absolutely knows what's going on, even though he's blind. Uh, so this show, this Netflix show, has some problems we're going to dig into, but weirdly, the disability accessibility is... Disability visibility is not one of them, which is what I expected when I rewatched this. Uh, So other than that, uh,
1: I'm curious what your thoughts are, Chris going in. So I've never been the biggest daredevil fan. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, be it the happy go lucky daredevil from like the early sixties to the dark, gritty Frank Miller daredevil to the super powerful daredevil. Even when he was like controlled by in the land and he was like the kingpin of New York, right? Had all of the superheroes fighting him. Inherently, Daredevil for me has the same problem that Batman has: mm-hmm. is primarily an an angry, grief stricken white dude that jumps out and goes and beats up people. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, that is a vast disconnect in the entire genre, as primarily the people are beating up on our economically disparaged um their racial overtones they put into it are primarily negative even the first episode of like the series we've got the reoccurring like black guy who shows up pretty much throughout most of the netflix shows i don't remember his name right now yeah there to get beat up on is kind of a joke yep and that is indicative of the entire sort of daredevil genre it is not one that i'm a fan of surprising as i love noir and, and Daredevil is sort of a angsty Catholic noir going on.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it is listed on Disney Plus right now as noir as one of the categories. So, I mean, it, it, it definitely leans into that. And I remember really loving Daredevil the first time I watched it. And, and I watched it again. I realized that it wasn't quite on the level, like, say – when we watched Battlestar Galacto, where I was like, oh, I feel very differently about this. I mean, I, I still generally liked it for all the stuff that we're going to tear it apart. But it's interesting to me how it's still trying to kind of feel its way. We're, we're still at a Marvel cinematic universe where it's still trying to figure out how it actually all connects together and how it all works. Agent Carter felt more a piece of the Marvel cinematic universe than this show does. And, and well, I'm, I'm slightly segueing into the first episode, but, but one of the things that's kind of throughout all of these episodes is they talk a lot about the incident. And in my head, I thought there was a lot more this show was signposting clearly what the movie was doing, the weren't respecting it back. But actually watching it, the incident could have been anything. They actually give no details of the incident. There are no movie clips in the background. There's no like TV screens talking about the incident. Everyone just kind of vaguely talks about the incident
1: and moves the hell on. Because I don't think they could legally do that. Right. Because they were not part of it and they couldn't say that they had any association with it. That's mm-hmm. why even now people are surprised that we're getting a new Daredevil and Kevin Feige is sort of retroactively, I think, making all those shows part of their continuity. Yeah. Which beforehand they couldn't do. And. That's why it's just the incident, and it's mentioned that it was destructive in New York, but it doesn't talk about, like, aliens. It doesn't talk about other superheroes. Even when – we're going to do Jessica Jones because we're in here. But even in Jessica Jones, they refer to themselves as, like, gifted, but they don't necessarily talk about it the same way that they do with how the Avengers do. So it's alluding to it without saying it. And before we move on into the show itself proper, I think that Daredevil took a lot of its influences from the first season of Arrow just by Mm -hmm. watching this. And Arrow was on the WB, which it was a dark and gritty retelling of Green Arrow for about one season. Right. Where Oliver would like snap necks. And I think you may have a passing familiarity with Green Arrow.
0: I think I've talked about it once or twice,
1: maybe. I don't remember. And so Daredevil took a lot of that and then ramped it up because they had a higher budget and they had a smaller episode count. Right. Which allowed them to do more. Mm -hmm. It's like some of the great fight scenes that we may talk about. I, yeah, I definitely do want to talk about
0: those. So it's – this is interesting because, again, retroactively, I very much looked at this like, oh, this is kind of a linchpin of, of the small Netflix connected universe. But also it was definitely a show that a lot of people were talking about and pointing to as like this is how Marvel TV could be done. And yet when you actually watch this first season, it's interesting how much of it doesn't do that. It, it it's it's written such a way that luckily Kevin Feige could then say okay, yeah sure still canon and, and nothing needs to change, but also this could have been completely cut off from our universe and no one would have known. So so I, props for them walking that line, but it it is very much its own thing, and so I think it, I'm glad we're starting with this because I do feel like the other shows that come on are a little more connected and yep. they're a little more confident, but this is very much Netflix going, what do we do with a superhero show? Because it's really the first one they've ever done. All right, so let's let's dive into episode one, Into the Ring. Crime cartels, including the Russian mafia, Yakuza, and Chinese mob, have exploited Hell's Kitchen circumstances since the quote-unquote incident Blinded as a boy in an accident that gave him enhanced senses, Matt Murdoch starts fighting his rising criminal elements by night as a constant vigilante while opening a law firm with his friend, Foggy Nelson. Their first client is Karen Page, a secretary for a construction company Union Allied, who has been framed for the murder of his co-worker, Daniel Fisher, after accidentally uncovering a money laundering scheme. Murdoch stops Karen from being prosecuted and protects her from a professional hitman before exposing a scandal through Ben Urich at the New York Bulletin. Grateful for the help, Paige offers to work for Murdoch and Nelson. James Wesley covers up the involvement from the player in the scandal and orders Antilly and Vladimir R- Renchkovich, the Russians' leaders, to handle Murdoch, they quote man in block. They kidnap young boy to lure him into a trap. Uh, so, like you mentioned with Arrow, this is very much Daredevil Year One. Like he's never called Daredevil until I think the very end. Um he we don't see his costume until the very end.
1: Which is another trope I, I
0: hate. I do. Like, well, we're here to trip. watch Daredevil. Let's watch Daredevil.
1: And like, even if you wanted to build up to it, it could have been maybe around episode six, like mm-hmm. your halfway point. But like, that is even a problem I have. With, I have a jillion problems with Smallville, which is probably why we will never discuss it. <laughs> but the fact that you went through ten seasons and like at the last two minutes they put a computer-generated suit on him to be Superman, and I still don't think you get a full view of him as Superman. Right. It's frustrating in its whole time.
0: Right. And this, I, from a structure perspective, I actually like how they do this is because the actual Matt Murdock is blinded as a kid and him, them moving to be superhero. It's a two minute stinger in this episode. And then they spend... They unwinds the actual threads of his origin throughout the next couple of episodes. And I think that's a pretty good way to do an origin. That's one of my favorite ways of doing an origin because we get to him being a vigilante pretty fast. Again, it's problematic, but you know, we do get there pretty fast and we start to see the the structure and the, 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 the build of daredevil, in the first episode. So we're not waiting a whole episode just to get to the thing we want. Again, there it's frustrating. The, the costumes, the name are held off, but at least a, a, a
1: vigilante acrobat, which is the core premise
0: of daredevil is there.
1: We, before we go on, we, yeah. we would be resident not, resident, not to mention that the slime that inflicted itself upon daredevil also cursed, four young turtles in the sewer and their rat mentor.
0: Yes. of okay. The group
1: that will someday be known as the teenage mutant Ninja Turtles who will battle not the hand, but a greater villain called the, the foot.
0: foot. Yes. Yes. It, for folks who don't know, The original TMNT comic was actually meant to be a parody of Frank Miller's Daredevil. Um, So yeah, their origin story is – because if you read the original comic, like you're saying, they're in the sewers. So the slime that he gets hit in the street actually drips into the sewers. and So it's the exact same slime. The idea is that they're actually in the Marvel Universe. And I did notice in this that the slime they use in this looks an awful lot like the ooze in Secret of the Ooze, the second transatlantic <laughs> movie. So it's like, I don't know if it's intentional or just kind of generic Hollywood radioactive ooze, but it was like, okay, I, I feel like it has to be intentional. Someone, someone if, somewhere, some FX guys laughing his head off going, no, look get
1: this. <laughs> if you're working on Daredevil, you know that. And you know right. that they can't say it, but they can are like, wink. Right. And it is amusing because like it took
0: me a decade or more before I realized the connection. And so I'm sure that someone's listening to an episode going, wait, what? Because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it, it's so weird that so much of that TMNT person has, has been unchanged. It, it's just stayed. Um, and it's like, no, no, it's, it's, it's uh, making fun of Daredevil, which I think is hilarious.
1: Sorry, just had to inject that.
0: No, it's fine. <laughs> I'm so Karen page. I want to talk about this a bit. I'm not a fan of it. I, I, I don't, I don't like woman in peril as a plot point.
1: I, I agree with you, but I, I do like uh, Deborah Ann Oral. Agreed. I'm sorry. I think I pronounced her last name wrong. Who is a fantastic aster- actress. I first saw her on uh, true blood and then I watched some of her actual plays. So if folks want to oh, give wow. her a shout out, she was running a great D&D game. I want to call, say it was like Relics and Antiquities or something. Oh, right. I never about that. I never watched it, but I heard about that. So give her a shout out and let her know how great a person she is.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's one thing I, 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 I want to say is like, I, I don't like the trope, but she handled it really well because she genuinely looked like someone who was traumatized by this event. I felt for her in a way that I don't usually feel for characters in these situations. Cause she's like, Oh God, this trope again. Um, but like she legitimately looks scared and some of the two the team's credit writing and the acting did blend like over time. It's like, it did, wasn't just a, like, I was framed for murder, but I got off. So now everything's fine. Now, no, she lives with us for quite mm-hmm. a long time. And so it's like, I, I actually did really appreciate that. While The setup is frustrating. Both the writing and the acting carried through to make her a genuinely compelling character, and it was nice to see. Well, the female secretary who's in danger is again a frustrating trope. How Foggy and Matt work together to help her, and how that that, that kind of all the, the the emotional frustrations and complications that come with when you're helping someone that you're also attracted to, and, and the finding the lines and all of that. Could have gone some really bad places, but like uh, moving a little bit mm-hmm. into episode two, but like Foggy manages that really well, and that was another piece of this. Like, it's so easy for Foggy to be kind of shoved in the background, but they did did and by having Karen at that plot line, it gave Foggy something to do for a while, mm-hmm. and he, for the most part, handles like a champ. Right? He 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 he's kind of a jerk, but I mean, he <laughs> doesn't take advantage of it at any point in time. He's like, you you don't want to go home? Great, we're not going home. We'll just stay out all night and we'll have a good time, and that's it. I mean, it's it. There's a, and that that it's a lot of that show. You're gonna, I think we're gonna have this as we talk about this. Is like, eh, I don't like this, but you know, with what they had,
1: they did some good stuff with it. Yeah. So, how did you feel about their law practice being seven hours old?
0: <laughs> I, I I have to feel like that is Matt making a joke. I don't think it actually is seven <laughs> hours old because I don't think you can do that legally. Although I, it's been a year, sadly, but there was someone there was actually a lawyer who was watching Daredevil and talking about all of the legal inaccuracies. They also did with with the Ace Attorney series, which is hysterical.
1: Do you but, think they're I gonna mean, do it with She-Hawk? Huh? Do you think they'll do it with Shehawk? I hope so, actually. I, mean, come I, think back and...
0: I think that'll be great. That'll be great. But it's I don't know, I mean like I I like the fact that it's, you know it's it's an up and coming Legal firm, and I think it was a good choice because Foggy's insistence on making money doesn't seem crass. It could, it could. Like, I'll oh, use it for money. No, it's like we need to keep lights on. We we when we we are a fledgling law firm. We need to cover the bills, uh, and that that lack of money is certainly a a a thread that goes through it. But also. They're kind of terrible lawyers. Let's be honest.
1: <laughs> so I know that we Daredevil is a somewhat problematic character, but the ability, generally, just to be able to tell when someone is telling the truth or not, is an astounding ability in yeah, real yeah. life. Yeah, like, yeah. That is a pristine power. Kind of how Doug Ramsey's power in real life is an exceptional power to understand like all languages and everything else. Mm-hmm. When you think about superpowers and application other than just trying to like go out and fight crime or commit crimes, how amazing they are. And I, one of the things I would have liked to have seen done is more of that throughout Matt's daily life in other aspects. And just, I know that criminals over there. I smell his cologne. I know right. vengeance must be done. I'm back. Daredevil.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's. And, and I mean, again, like I, his heightened senses, giving him different access to the worlds. I generally felt that that landed pretty strongly when they bothered to do it, you know? And in this episode, we see a fair bit of that. Like just the, the, the again, when I'm talking to Karen in police custody, uh, and they, they did the kind of warbling distortion effect when she was talking and, he, you know, zoom in on his eyes. And then he just goes, I believe her. And, they did a good job of establishing that Foggy and Matt had a long-term relationship because you know, Matt kind of, Foggy just rolls his eyes and goes, okay, whatever. He doesn't even question it. He doesn't ask why. He's just like, clearly Foggy has dealt with this nonsense before. And he's just like, all right, Matt, sure, fine, fine. <laughs> I'm frustrated because you usually write, so let's just, do, let's just do this, I guess. That So that was good. Also, little things, again, uh, like... If you watch whenever Matt is in a scene with one other person, he never quite looks directly at that person when I mean, they're both in frame. Uh, so, in that scene, for example, he's looking slightly to Karen's right, which does two things. One, uh, uh, that's something that's very common with blind people, from my experience, is that they're trying to roughly triangulate you with sound. And it's not going to be exact, but also that does mean that his ear is a little closer to her, so he could hear her heartbeat. Uh, so it's, it's some of the blocking and stuff like that was actually really astounding. It's like, yes, that that's actually accurate. You know, on the flip side, blind people are not as unaware of their environments as a lot of people believe, even not super powered ones. So there were some moments where it's like, you know, it wasn't played for a joke. Like you know, he's always pointing in the wrong direction, or people are having to move him around. But little things like she would just nod and Foggy would say she nodded. It was kind of cute. You know, I mean, that's that's the thing that you would do. You know, it's like there was a a visual cue you could not have seen. Foggy is clearly just gotten used to doing that for Matt and doesn't seem to be begrudged by it. Uses as a way to kind of slide in the commentary and occasionally lies, but in a joking way. Like, no, she was she's horrible looking. You would hate her. You know, I mean, It's, it's clear he's joking. But the fact that he's describing her, that that is a relationship of people often have with blind friends uh, or family or whatever. So it was, again, little touches that I really, really liked. And I keep harping on Foggy because I think Foggy's great in this season. I know in future seasons, he's a very frustrating character, but like here, it's like that, that friendship is genuinely fun to watch. And we just don't see enough of it, honestly, because Matt and foggy kind of stop being friends. I mean, not, not friends, like we don't see them much on screen together after this episode.
1: Well, he, he foggy is pretty awesome this season. It shows that, in my takeaway that he is a better lawyer yes. and he's generally more affable and he made connections with people. Like even when we start the episode where he bribes a cop who he's childhood friends with <laughs> with cigars for the cop's mom. To get right. like pieces of information, nothing that breaks the law, but it comes up really close and like bends it. Mm-hmm. To see how, how squeaky it is. But like little touches like that are more indicative of the character they're portraying him to be. Right. Compared to Matt, who is your more... Grizzled, darker hero who is supposedly charismatic and attractive to people. So they gravitate towards him, but he doesn't have what it takes to back that up later on for relationships.
0: No, you're absolutely right. It, and it is a dumb joke, but I genuinely love the foggy. He to stop giving his mother cigars. It's like she, she'll outlive us all. You know, what <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, it, it's a dumb joke, but he, he sells it well because he recognizes it's a dumb joke. But like also things like, you know, oh, no, I said I'm not bribing a cop, but also seriously I have to bribe a cop. You know, what <laughs> what I mean it's it's the 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 banter is just, right, it's necessary. And I think it's I think one of the reasons where his loss is more felt when we go into later episodes is because since Foggy's not around to ground Matt, it does slide into that almost arrow level of or you know, Batman overly dramatic, almost melodramatic. <laughs> And then you have Foggy, just having a human relationship with Karen, which is great.
1: Which, funny enough on a Batman thing though, it's funny how Batman, the lone Dark Avenger, has one of the largest Bat families, equivalently, surrounding him of other characters that are always there to step in at a moment's notice. Digression.
0: I recently have been playing with uh, Webtoons, uh, which is a vertical scrolling uh, comic platform. Uh, so you install it on your phone and you just keep scrolling vertically. And that's the whole issue. And they have a licensed one called the Bat Family Adventures. And it literally is all of the the entire Bat Family living at Wayne Manor. And all the stuff happens between cases. <laughs> <laughs> so like there's an entire story of, of like they have a yearly con- uh, video game contest, but they know Bruce hates it. And so a couple of them have to kind of go to Bruce and Alfred going, I could use a refresher course on courtly manners at dinners because if I have to go with you occasionally, and so they live with that without well, other downstairs like playing Mario Kart effectively. <laughs> but also there's some interesting stuff like uh, Jason Todd has, Uh, Traumatic flashback to the time he was captured by the Joker. And they they actually spent a couple issues talking about how they calm him down. And Bruce talks him through it. And it's like, you know, I remember when I was alone and I thought that made me strong. And I realized I didn't. That's why I have a family. And it's like the stuff that you wouldn't see in DC comics, there's genuinely wholesome stuff. Because you're right, it's, 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 we had the idea of Batman as this lone villain, but he's really not. And Daredevil. Luckily, abandons that premise pretty quickly, right? It's it, it's the first this episode, this very first one. He's like, I have to do this alone, and it goes confined. But like, almost immediately, he gets a, a larger cast. He gets Karen, he gets Foggy, um, and then in follow up episodes, we'll get even more characters added on. So like, Matt pretty quickly abandons that premise, but he will of course do the heroic thing, quote unquote heroic thing, of like randomly abandoning his friends to quote unquote protect them. Uh, so I mean, that, that's that's. Uh, a common pro particularly the Mark Miller era of the "I'm in love with you, but I I I can't endanger you. I have to leave you." And it's like I'm the Black Widow. No, I must I must abandon you.
1: <laughs>
0: I literally kill people kill people for Russia. No, 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 no. I have to protect you.
1: <laughs> so, can we talk about how gruesome and gritty and brutal the fights are? Yes, like just hands down, and it's. Shocking to see a low end street powered level character committing so much just like violence and like, like beating on someone compared to watching even just a slightly higher end superhero with any sort of superpowers, physical superpowers, like super strength or endurance or something. Right. Those two are an interesting parallel to watch. Even if we briefly touch on like Falcon, the winter soldier, Right. Like their fights were some of them are hard, but they were quicker. And like when they punch someone, they'd like go flying across the room and that person would be incapacitated for the fight. Right. Compared to this where Matt's punching people for five to six seconds of screen time just repeatedly.
0: Yeah. Uh, in this episode, the uh, scene with the shipping containers is where we see that uh, kind of the big first fight where you're right. It's it's, it's drawn out. It's not the right word. It's, it's given some room to breathe. And it's not high acting, like I said, high cut cut cut, 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 you know, there, there's a lot of flexibility and you see kind of things landing together. And, and also the consequences of um, like the typical superhero fight is very much kind of one punch, knock someone down moments. And this one is like, you know, somebody's knocked down, they're thrown away. And then that person gets up, but like, there's, there's a spatial awareness of like how the fight's landing. Let me, let me jump to episode two because I want to talk about the hallway fight too in context of this. Uh, so real quick, uh, episode two, cut, man. When Murdoch was a boy, his father was murdered by the Hell's Kitchen Irish mob for winning a match he was told to throw. Now, after failing to rescue the kidnapped boy, a severely injured Murdoch is found in a dumpster by Nurse Claire Temple. Nelson, meanwhile, attempts to comfort Paige following her recent traumatic experiences. Temple takes Murdoch to her apartment, tends to his wounds, and removes his mask, discovering his blindness. He refuses to reveal his name, but does reveal his heightened senses when they alert him to a Russian who is searching the apartment building, giving Temple time to hide Murdoch and convince the man that she knows nothing. Murdoch realizes the man did not believe her and overpowers him, taking him to the roof. Murdoch and Temple torture him into revealing the boy's location before Murdoch pushes him off the roof and into the same dumpster. Murdoch says he will survive. Murdoch enters the building where the keeping the boy defeats the guards and rescues the boy. That last sentence covers the the hallway scene. And for those of you who don't know, the hallway scene, one of the more infamous show, scenes from the show, is basically he goes to a hallway underneath a, a building where the boys captured. He, the boys captured in one room, and we initially see some various of these Russian groups moving between other rooms in this hallway. Like, once there's a group that has a poker games, group watching TV, and the camera never appears to cut away. Uh, so we we follow this long dolly shot down watching them in, and then. The camera spins around. Matt walks into the hallway and then starts a fight. And that fight goes on for easily five minutes. It is a very long fight scene. And this is after he's been badly injured. And now that I know a bit more about how TV is made in modern times and I've watched it, there are places where there are cuts. Uh, they're, they're, They're really hard to find. Um, But, like, a lot of times when the camera's swinging or when someone gets knocked into a room, that's a place where they can cut the camera and restage it. So it's not actually one continuous shot. It looks like it. And they do a fantastic job of making it look like it. So I'm not down them at all about that. But to your point, one of the things that always struck me, and that struck me again when I watched it again, is that he looks exhausted during this fight. He's... On top of it, he's doing a good job, but like when, when he has a half a second between blows, he sags down. He's his body language slumps. He looks like he's going to just fall over, and you don't see that in superhero stuff. It, and it was, it was a genuinely amazing moment of like you really can. You, and because it's so long and it's this long uncut shot, you feel that exhaustion too because you're kind of exhausted looking at this long shot without a cut as a, as a viewer. And so you, as the viewer, are kind of going, man, this is this is taking a while. And so you start to feel that same thing on him, which is it's amazing cinematography.
1: Well, the other part that it also displays is that he is really just a dude. Like at the end of the day, yeah. he may have super senses, but he doesn't have super other superpowers, like. He doesn't have enhanced reflexes, how a gambit would. He doesn't have enhanced stamina, how Cap would. He doesn't have super strength, how Luke Cage would. So he has trained human stamina. Not even the peak of human, how Cap is. It's like a dude that has been trained. And right. later on, you do find that he is trained by Stick and ninjas and all this other stuff. He's just not a boxer. Right. Also, him
0: is Stick Splinter reference, just so everyone knows.
1: Which is in and of itself is also another tangent that we probably won't go into right now, but that's some problematic areas too. About the boxing? About the ninja S training. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the, the white man who goes into a ninja society and is better than all of them.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. Trained by a a white right. mentor who is also the best of the best.
0: And what 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 frustrates me about that is the other subplot in this episode. His dad is a boxer, and you could just use that, right? Like I – so part of Matt's whole thing is that he, his dad is kind of his Uncle Ben, right? It's that his dad is the person who inspired him to be the person he is. And I think they did a really good job in this structure where – Yes, we're seeing kind of what Matt's like growing up, but really it's about his dad and the way they kind of frame it and structure it. His dad very, very slowly becomes kind of the center of that actual plot line, and we see Matt on the fringes of that plot. So it's not really about Matt anymore; it's about um, Jack Murdoch. And they gave they gave time to that because how he trains to become. An amazing super ninja who with, with abilities is actually not as interesting. Why he does this is interesting, and why he does this is because of Jack Murdoch. So we need to find out who Jack Murdoch is. And they spent a lot of time doing it. And again, the actor who plays Jack Murdoch is great. Phenomenal. He really comes across as the single dad who's trying to do the best for his kid and sometimes screws it up, but has a huge heart. And doing that, it would have been so easy to have him slide to toxic masculinity, and he just doesn't. He, he disciplines his son. He listens to his son. He tries to understand what his son's going through in his new situation, does everything he can to try to make sure he has the best life possible. Um, and that's ultimately the core of the conflict, right, is that he could get a lot of money for taking a dive. And so he feels like that's the thing he needs to do to make sure that his son has a financially secure future. But then when Matt's like, oh, you know, Murdoch's, we get knocked down a lot, but but we get back up, right? And realizing that he also needs to be a a moral compass for his son. And so he decides to win the fight. And that goes badly for him.
1: Well, it's... It's an interesting time for him to only decide to stop taking dives because it's inferred that he's been taking dives this whole time through. Because right. even when Matt comes to him, so we even went, how do we get all this money if you lost? Well, sometimes you win when you lose. Right is something else that he was sort of trying not to tell him about. Right, and for me as a parent, it is hard for me to watch that. For a parent to decide that trying to have your kid have at least one idealized moment where you win. Is worth removing you from their existence. Right. Because that may have given Matt money somewhat, we'll assume, Mm -hmm. if assuming the mob didn't come and take it from the bookie, assuming the bookie put it where he was supposed to put it. Right. Assuming Matt got access to it, assuming the government didn't come and take it because they want to know where all this money came from. Oh, sure. Yeah. A multitude of things. But for him to make that decision that someone should hear them cheer his name, is more valuable to him than staying with his kid doesn't work for me as a parent and as a viewer.
0: Well, the thing that I liked about it is that in his, when he calls to, uh, what seems to be his ex wife and leaves a voicemail message. Side note: the payphone in the gym was just it, peak eighties. <laughs> but he leaves the the voicemail and he makes a comment of like, "I'm about to make another dumb decision," right? So. In a very short space, we get the sense that Jack Murdock specifically is prone to making rash, decis- rash decisions for what he thinks is right. And he is certainly reluctant to take these dives. It's very clear that, that this is weighing on him. So I think there's a certain self-awareness of him going, I know what I'm about to do. So I can either pretend I'm not going to do it, do it anyway, and screw everything up, or try to make as much right as I can before I make the inevitably done decision I know I'm going to make. But I agree with you. This falls into the same category of most superhero stories be solved by two people sitting in a room for five minutes actually having a conversation like adults. You know, it's the most superhero parents are terrible parents <laughs> because otherwise <of laughs> they wouldn't be superheroes. So, I mean, yes, he, he's he's... He's a father who's trying to be a good father, but ultimately he's not because he should have realized, you're right, he should stay to help his son who is blind. You know, that, that that's, I mean, again, disability does not detract from a personhood, but at the same time, a kid growing up with no parents and disability on top of it is a huge, huge obstacle.
1: So the, on the plus part though, let's say that, well, they couldn't say it directly. We all know that he knocked out Crusher Creel, a.k.a. The Absorbing Man. Yes.
0: Yes, that was great. That was I loved that reference. And then also, Claire Temple. This is... The Night Nurse. Yes. The, when it first watched it, I was like, okay, that is a deep, 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 deep cut. <laughs> because Night Nurse was... She was a Marvel character, and I use that in quotes because she was actually part of the romance line that Marvel's producing at this at this in sixties. That were only very vaguely tied to the superhero stuff. Over time, they became more worked in because Marvel realized, well, we own the rights to these characters; we might as well use them.
1: So, was she from like the Marvels romance, or was she from like a Timely like comics that transitioned over? Yeah, she was a Timely comic. She was actually the comic would cause okay. nightmares,
0: and it was. One of those where she worked the night shift and strange but unusual men would come in and she would, you know, secretly fall in love with them. Uh it was it was bad, man. It was bad. So this is none of that, thankfully. But no, yeah, Claire Temple's absolutely from that same same as uh Hellcat, you know. Hellcat. Kind of, yes. I mean, she's also originally was from my mouth from my model Millie, the model Millie, something like that, um, which was their kind of uh, um, Archie ripoff.
1: Since you didn't mention Elkat, no and it has absolutely nothing to do with this, I do have to say, Wildcats, Wildcats.
0: <laughs> so oh,
1: we, should, we should we should do an image around of these one point. <laughs> I know, I don't ever want to hear anyone complain about Mary Sue's again in my entire existence, and I am bringing this into Daredevil because. Daredevil, I'm not gonna say Daredevil is a Mary or Matt Sue, but I'm gonna say that Daredevil only lives and survives because he is written to do so from the amount of grievous wounds oh God, bleeding yes. out, the near superhuman abilities for someone that doesn't have superpowers to be bleeding out at the start of the episode to then go and have one of the most dynamic fight scenes in superhero TV show for who knows how long. Right. Like that is the biggest Matt Mary Sue there is. And people didn't call it out. They were just like, oh my God,
0: look at him go. Right. No, 1000%. He's, uh, again, Bruce Wayne, right? Bruce Wayne is exactly the same. It, it's the, oh, well, he can just limp back to Alfred and Alfred has amazing medical skills. And that's why Bruce Wayne, no, no there, there's willpower only takes you so far. Eventually, your body just stops working.
1: Unless you're Green Lantern with a power ring. But, right. Once again, superpower.
0: Right, exactly. And even then, with, with, with Batman, you could almost kind of clutch of like, okay, well, he developed a suit that go you know, gives puts pressure on the wounds to keep him alive a little bit longer. You know, you could use super tech to babble it away. Matt Murdock has none of that. It's just, my dad was a boxer and he taught me to always stand up when you get knocked down. And it's like, sure, but there's a point in time where your body's just not getting up. He's <laughs> like, you may want to get up, but your body's like, nah. He's
1: up. dressed like Wesley from The Prince's Bride. Like yes. literally, there is no protection in that black stocking that he wears. Right, and so that was painful because I was also been doing like some recent rereading of Star Wars, some debating, rewatching the Star Wars, and I keep saying all this stuff about Ray is being a Mary Sue, and I'm sitting here watching Daredevil, basically resurrect himself on screen. Mm-hmm. Yes, with a little help from Claire, and it just rubbed me the wrong way.
0: Well, I mean, but let, but let, let's let's shoot straight here. It, it's straight up sexism, right? It's like when a woman character is, or, or character of color, to be honest, is written that way, that's when you get the, oh, is it Mary Sue? It's idealist. Because early on, Black Panther had some of that shit too, right? And it's like, Black Panther is nowhere near as egregious as Daredevil is in here. No. But there is this trope that the protagonist of a noir takes a certain amount of abuse and that is meant to be metaphorically representative of the the beating his innocence and his ideology takes as going through the course of the story. So that, that's, that's supposed to be an external manifestation of internal loss. But when you bring superheroics into it, that gets amplified and to a ludicrous degree. And there's a certain amount of whether you accept that or not. I accept that, but I also accept that regardless of the color and gender of the character, I don't make a distinguish between those two points.
1: Well, I could also say that it goes back to the hero's journey and about things they have to overcome is also something they have to endure as part of it. And all those other characters are doing it too, even though they're not the noir genre, but it is racism and sexism. And I yep. felt I needed to call it out here, no, specifically in this episode, because there is no way Matt Murdock, AKA, I don't have a superhero name because I'm the man in black and I'm not Daredevil, would have gotten up, to go and have that amazing fight scene right like right. claire is an amazing nurse they pointed out she stops his collapsed lung yes <laughs> in this episode i want to
0: mm. yeah 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 it's it's <laughs> for, for for as much as this show kind of tried to spread things out that was the point where it's like even if you had put like him recovering in her apartment and then that fight in the next episode there would have been a a physical, not physical distance, but like a, a mechanical distance. Like, like yeah. The structure of the show would have put distance there. In episode break, even if it falls on, we still intellectually think time has passed. So, I mean, that small thing would, would have helped change that, but because it's this episode and it's put right at the end, it's, it's the stinger for the episode, it, it's just because, I mean, in the middle of all this, he also spends time to torture a guy on a rooftop, you know? So, I mean, he Matt, Matt has a full docket today of things he has to get done while being
1: injured. And I know we're going to have to go on because we're starting to run a little long, <laughs> but how he also manages to corrupt Claire and make her change her own moral values during a torture scene. Has, yeah, it happens real fast. Is an interesting thing to see because so, you already mentioned before, find out she's been in the hospital and seeing people he's put in and has a belief in him wanting to do the right thing and how far she's willing to compromise herself in the hopes that he's going to do the right thing. Right. It's an interesting thing to watch within plays with the concept of the morality of heroics. i can't say superheroes because it doesn't really have superpowers technically speaking. Right. <laughs> but it's a superheroic <laughs> universe. And that morality and what it does to other people. Right. Yeah. It's, it's
0: when I watched it again, the, the pacing was definitely a bit wonky but one of the things I think that leads to that is if you look at modern Disney plus shows, and I'm sure we will at some point, with a few exceptions, a lot of them are structured like really long movies, frankly. It, it's We find a, an interesting place to, to do the, the scene breaks, but at the end of the day, you could more or less smush them together and have one really long movie, and that's pretty much it. This is still structured like television. So even though it is an entire season long story each episode has an arc Mm -hmm. and so it's something that it's interesting to me because we're gonna see that design evolve and change as we look through other shows but this is one where it's it's kind of in a midpoint it's still television but it's you know shows, companies like Netflix and their streaming shows, just prestige television, trying to say people are binging stuff. So they'll watch all the way through. So we can tell a connected story. We don't have to wait week to week, but they're still used to writing like television. So this was, the arc was, you know, Jack Murdoch getting up from the mat and Matt Murdoch getting up from the couch are meant to parallel each other. And that's the, the structure of it. And both of them get up, and have the final fight against all odds when they're exhausted, when they're worn down. Jack fails to recover from that situation. Matt succeeds. That's, that's the arc there. And so it's, it's, it, I can see structurally why it's built that way. But it didn't need to be, and I don't think they realized it didn't need to be at this point. They could have structured that over two episodes and been fine. The thing just were not quite, quite wrap their head around streaming yet. Uh, let's go to episode six real quick. Uh, it's Condemned. Uh, Murdoch takes out the police when they try to kill Vladimir on Fisk's orders, and he takes Vladimir to an abandoned warehouse, hoping for answers about Fisk, while Nelson and Cordinus are injured in the bodies. Cordinus was a a nearby neighbor of theirs uh, at the law office. With Temple's help, Murdoch cauterizes Vladimir's wounds, alerting a non-corrupt police officer to their presence. The officer calls in Murdoch and Vladimir's location, and the warehouse is surrounded. Blake and Hoffman, which are officers in Fisk's pay, take control of the situation and await Fisk's orders. Fisk talks to Murdoch via police radio, telling him of his admiration for what Murdoch is trying to do, even though it clashes with Fisk's own plans to save the city. Fisk then frames the vigilante by having NYPD ESU sniper fire on the other officers from the roof of the warehouse, including Blake, as Ben Urich and the media look on. Vladimir, in return for Murdoch avenging internally death, gives him information on Leland Owsley, the accountant for all of Fisk's operations, before giving his life so that Murdoch can escape. So, gonna stop there. We don't see Leland Owsley. He's the fucking owl. <laughs> I'm like, they put the owl in this.
1: It is even better than that. So, a little bit, I guess, of a, a deeper cut and a, a shout out to Jan Miles uh, is that originally, for people that know the X Men, mm-hmm. Apocalypse was yes. actually supposed to be the owl. And yes. they sort of changed that at the last minute and turned Apocalypse into like this infinitely more interesting and complex character than having it just be the owl. But the owl man <laughs> and, and honestly oh. this is
0: this is actually what i love about mcu and MCU Jason stuff is when they can take just real z-list characters and shove them in there and like if you don't know who Leland moseley is what
1: the the owl is not a z-list character
0: i can't go lower than z-list <laughs> you know
1: greatness that the owl has he no, absolutely, it's a question. Do, do you know the greatness? <laughs> I'm saying, it, it,
0: it, are you saying that Leland Owsley is on the same level as Stingray? That's what I'm hearing.
1: Yes, <laughs> I would. I would form my own Thunderbolts with the owl and Stingray. tuned, <laughs> folks? I, I got to have a roster of seven. So that's two right now. You got him down. Still, man <laughs> Nope, doesn't make the cut. <laughs>
0: still, still,
1: man. Nope, no good.
0: So yeah, so again, like this is another example of that is structured like television, right? Because this is ultimately, this whole episode is more or less Daredevil stuck in a warehouse trying to interrogate Vladimir. Uh, and it's, uh, for those of you who don't know, it, it's structured like it was called a bottle episode. And bottle episodes are episodes where it's usually sought, shot in one set or a very small section of sets. Because the show is trying to save money. And so they structure entire episodes to where they can reuse things they already have to shoot a whole new episode. So they don't have to buy new locations, get locations, hire new actors, so on and so forth. So while I don't know if this is intended to be a bottle episode, it definitely has that vibe of like, we've read this warehouse. God damn it, we're going to film a whole lot in this warehouse.
1: And they frequently have these so they can build up to like big super episodes that would blow the budget of any one single episode. So that right, gives you exactly. a chance to almost stack two budgets worth into one episode.
0: Yeah. Doctor Who famously would, would try to find ways around this because since the whole premise of the show is they have to go to new locations, they would try to find ways to, to recycle sets or go back to locations or, or whatever. Um, it's particularly classic Doctor Who when the budgets were particularly tight.
1: They'd move the rocks from one quarry to another quarry.
0: Right, and now it's they spray painted it green. Now it's different. But I picked this one primarily because this is when we really see Wilson Fisk. We see the Kingpin, although he's never called that again. So again, like they, they allude to it, like they have urge with the the playing cards with stuff written on them because the, the King, because because he's Kingpin and the and the King, mm-hmm. and I was like oh, trying too hard, trying too hard. Also, you can't read
1: on those cards.
0: That's not how you just post it. It's like a, like a normal person, Ben.
1: (laughs) So I, I love the idea and the premise of this episode, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you unequivocally, there's no way after he killed a cop, even if he didn't kill, I'm doing finger quotes, by the way, for folks, they can't see, right. He killed a cop. He would ever, ever be able to then go back and become a hero and run around for the rest of the show. Right. Like, hands down and that goes back to the cop agenda but it also goes back to the very premise of public reaction public input and to think that he would is also factoring in to a level of white privilege that daredevil has because you get to see the lower half of his face so people see that he's a white hero and they're making they're more forgiving of that fact than it would be if it was a person of color in a similar situation.
0: Right. Exactly. And so the guy who plays Wilson Fisk uh, is a genuinely good actor. And I think a lot of people really like his portrayal of it, but you're not really seeing it in this first season. I had a different, I had a vision that he was a much cooler character in the season. I think I'm thinking of season two in retrospect, because, He's kind of planned, frankly, in this. I was like, this is the episode where they talk and it'll be great. And it's it's kind of not. The only thing that's really interesting is that Fisk is ostensibly also trying to rebuild Hell's Kitchen. And the reason why he's doing all of this is actually to get money to rebuild the city. Which is such an obviously garbage justification <laughs> that the fact that the show plays it like he's – No, seriously, I actually want to rebuild the city. It's like there are – so many legal ways you can do this that don't involve actually murdering people and buying off cops. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... it's The whole thing kind of just feels a bit weird. But I do like the fact that we do have uh, a villain here who's... The Kingpin is a very shouty character in the comics. The fact that he played him much more subdued and quiet, even though the words he's saying were kind of meh, that low gravitas, you start to see it building here. It doesn't actually take form until later, but you, still, you see the genesis of it. It's like, he's a character that he, when he speaks, you can see people listening to him and say, okay, I, I can see why people are scared of this guy, even though he's not shouting and screaming and making threats. I, I can see where it's building there, but it's, you don't actually see it in its full form in this episode, which is a little disappointing. I actually like this
1: because it's, him not doing that because the kingpin is a very volatile character in this interpretation, mm-hmm. and you see that even while he's talking to him, it is an effort to control his own temper and rage the character has, and that is played out even through like the words he chooses and then like the actions that he always takes, which gives you that constant buildup of who the character is. And then, when you get the kingpin episode, when he I'm not going to give spoilers. Does what he does right. in his own personal life that helps shape him, and then when he finally has a confrontation with the man that would be Daredevil and himself, you get to see that rage unleashed and what it does and how destructive it is.
0: So yeah, I can I can, I can see that. I think for me, uh, it's it's the, it's the problem with the way we structure these reviews, right? Because we're taking these things to a degree out of in isolation and looking at this episode just as an episode, and so you don't see that buildup happening here. It's something you have to have either future knowledge of where the character is going. And uh, you're right. He's a, he's a very volatile character, but again, I, I like the fact that uh, the actor doesn't use volume always to communicate that he uses a uh, uh, focus or intentionality or, or stress or physical acting to communicate that better, which I like. Um, but on top of that, he's crammed in a car here, so you can't see the physical acting as much. It's just face acting and voice acting, which are both great, don't get me wrong, but I know there's more there. So I think it's more the fact that I know there's depth and layers here that I'm not seeing at this moment. So uh, I, I, I realize as I'm talking this out that I'm dumping on the show earlier for being too episodic, and now I'm dumping on it for being too focused on streaming structures. So that's not really fair. Uh, so I, I kind of I'll w- withdraw the. the a lot of my concerns it was more the fact that i had in my head what this talk was and turns out that wasn't the actual talk
1: that was on screen can i say that it's great to watch eddie have this uh realization and talk mentally talk to himself while he's talking (laughs) to all of you and he's not looking at me he's speaking to himself he's like looking past me (laughs) so it it is fun to watch but yet disturbing at the same time that makes me cry a little on the inside I, i
0: do i do i do talk i do talk out loud i do Talk to myself. You should see me when I'm writing. It's just I'm muttering all the time. So, I mean, it's, it's
1: just how I am. So, I think his name is uh, De- Vincent D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio. Thank like, you.
0: Yeah, I'm terrible at actors' names.
1: Because he was originally I mean, on The Shield, and I caught bits and pieces of The Shield. But then he, spoilers for people that haven't seen Hawkeye. Right. He, he does show up in Hawkeye, and it is a the same character with a different interpretation
0: he is he is more comic book accurate which is good and bad i mean let's just put it there i I talked a little bit about his interpretation in my hawkeye uh briefly a little bit my hawkeye thing but ultimately he's got the super strength now uh and so that rage can be presented in different ways but that means that it, his his performance feels a little flatter, but also he was only in that show for a small period of time. So I mean, he didn't have the room right. to breathe like several seasons. So I'm trying not to knock it too much. It, but it's definitely a different take.
1: And since I guess since we're touching back on comics a little bit, of the original, if I remember properly, Kingpin was originally a Spider-Man villain. Yes. That transitions to become more of a Daredevil villain and then mm-hmm. become more of a New York villain. Right. Throughout the course of his run.
0: Right. He becomes kind of... Between him and Hammerhead, they become kind of the de facto crime bosses in Marvel New York for quite a long time. Magia pops up here and there, but they really moved to the West Coast over time. Why do I know the structures of organized
1: crime in Marvel comic books? I don't know. Because you want Marvel to come and ask you to write for them.
0: (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs)
1: I'm I'm not going to lie. I may have tweeted at Kevin Feige in Marvel once or twice. (laughs) Yeah. Shoot, I would shot, happily man. restart your Westerns or I've got this great new idea for Joseph X and prodigy set in DC. Ooh. But, I know. Right. Uh, but they haven't contacted me yet. So Give trademark copyright on both of us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I would, I'd be remiss. I have to mention the great Ben Uric. Yes. I was about to talk about this series. Ben mm-hmm. Okay. But, because Ben in the comics is also an interesting character who figures out who Daredevil, Daredevil, ah, who Daredevil is for his own investigations, mm-hmm. which was a very nice touch to see Ben in the show. And I was even more excited when they had a black actor playing Ben and Ben was still like all about the truth and figuring out the case mm-hmm. and how he warns Karen against doing certain things. And that was one like a touchstone for me to watch and enjoy the show. Yeah. Ben was definitely one of those characters
0: where, like, you could see at the scripting stage that he was very much the, we should probably have a reporter in. This makes the most sense from the comics. Let's bring him in to have that kind of subplot of uncovering the kingpin and potentially uncovering Daredevil. And then he gets on screen. It's like, I want an entire show of Ben. <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> really, again, the actors brought a lot more to the, the, the material they had. And it's just like, oh, Ben it should be in everything. That, this
1: is fantastic.
0: Um, I think he does show up more in the other kind of Netflix-related shows, if I remember correctly.
1: I don't think so because oh, is it really just Daredevil? Because Daredevil kills a character to motivate Karen to take a more active role and become oh, more powerful. Oh, you're, right, you're right. You're right. You're right. So right. They kill that. him for her character for her story arc.
0: Reverse fridging! Hooray!
1: Mm-hmm. Which I almost stopped watching the show at that point. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna lie. I had to take a break from it when it first came out. Give it like a week or two before I came back to watch it. Yeah. Uh, because in the comics, Ben also is a person that eventually Jessica Jones... Well, why am I, Why do I know the Spider-Man history and J. Jonah Jameson? <laughs> Jameson hires Jessica Jones because she needs money because she's pregnant and they don't have insurance. Like Luke and her don't have insurance because re- Luke runs a private eye. Heroes for hire. Jessica's a PI so they don't have any insurance so she works at the Daily Bugle to get insurance to get a salary and he just wants like pictures of her kid and she doesn't know how to be a journalist she knows how to be an investigator and Ben sort of teaches her how to be an investigator not sorry a journalist oh
0: cool okay I actually didn't know
1: all about that. it is the, the not as good second run of Jessica Jones because like the first one is great and this one's called I want to say The Pulse okay. which is a little hit or miss but it's still nice
0: Also, I wanted to talk about what you mentioned before about the implausibility of Daredevil's healing and being active after being so injured. And it's interesting. We're watching these episodes right next to each other. So I think it stands out more. But Vladimir gets shot and has a flare shoved into his side to cauterize the wounds. And he's written like he's going to die right? And it's like one bullet, a little bit of, of, you know, second degree burns, whatever. You know, Anyone can get through that. And he's treated like, oh my god, he's barely going to make it. Whereas objectively, Matt Murdock has gone through so much worse and still has a hallway fight scene. Yeah. So that was when he's- I noticed that of like, man, Vladimir's... And my, my first reaction was like, you know, Vladimir's kind of a weapon. It's like, no, he just got shot and had a Flare shoved in his side. I would be almost dead. I would probably be dead.
1: You know? They're they're treating Matt more like the 70s and 80s version of Wolverine with his regeneration. Right. Right.
0: And he has a phone call with Claire to get medical advice. And she's, since episode two, gotten very bloodthirsty. You know? She's like, you know, Mm -hmm. because she makes the comment of like, Here's what you do, um, and it hurts. So that's a bonus, you know. What I mean, she's just <laughs> not subtle in her disgust with the Russian mobsters.
1: Well, she also points out that they were the ones that I think beat her or kidnapped her. So there's right. that mix of daredevil esque rage and vengeance in there, which goes back to the morality of what they're doing and how just is it. And who are they really bringing? Like, really, to justice at the end of the day, like I understand Mm -hmm. they're fighting against a overwhelming corrupt power structure that with tendrils going all the way down. But if they're well, primary lawyers and healers, they should be able to also do that in another way. Right. But then it goes back into why are we have superheroes?
0: Right. And, And and even more specifically, we're talking about ER nurse and defense lawyers. So like, you know, even within those those job descriptions, even further closer to the helping and protecting people why why are those jobs not sufficient right
1: yeah
0: and it comes down to because everything's corrupt tm you know and like every cop is corrupt except for this one cop who isn't that matt beats the crap out of you know and it's it's I, I, again it's noir i get it That that that's that's the trope yeah. and it's it's bizarre I think because of this kind of liminal state of this show are all New York cops this corrupt is it just Hell's Kitchen you know is is every Marvel police department this corrupt you know it because it's the show's trying to be its own thing it can do that well sure you know everyone's corrupt we don't have to talk about anything beyond Hell's Kitchen but yet if it's essentially part of the Marvel universe it raises questions it's not prepared to answer
1: which, as, as a side note, I don't know if you've been to Hell's Kitchen in the 2000s. It's, uh, like the it's 2020s. gentrified. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We were there about three years ago. And I was like, Daredevil would have nothing to do here.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It, it has like nice loft apartments and Starbucks. I mean, it's 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 nothing like and, and that. And I think their argument to get it back to that 70s level era was, oh, the incident caused all this to be yeah. run down. And it's like, that's that, okay. <laughs> Again, it's, yeah. it, I, I, I respect the fact that it's just like, listen, we're just going to do Daredevil. Some of the stuff you have to take on faith and just go with it. And it's like, all right, fine. I, I'm willing to do that. But then when you stack multiple seasons on it and then multiple shows and they're all connected, that that's, that's load bearing conceits. And then also trying to make a nod towards a larger movie franchise. There's, there's only so much compartmentalization you can actually do. Um, so it's for the first attempt to at doing something like this, I think it's reasonably strong. I mean, we've given this a lot of crap, but this, this shows reasonably strong. It, it It's came in with a very solid vision. It is very much emulating both the good and the bad of a specific run of comics, which is what it set out to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did some interesting adaptations and some, genuinely fantastically good acting and cinematography that I wasn't expecting out of a show period, let alone a superhero show. Uh, so it, it definitely swung for bleachers and got a solid base hit, to use this yeah. analogy.
1: When it first aired, I, I'm i not going to lie, I had some issues with it, which we've discussed, but I enjoyed it and I watched it. Mm-hmm. And I was excited to hear that it got another season. I was more excited when I heard that there would be other shows like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. Like yes. Those really made me excited. But going back to it now when we're in this like age of superheroes, like the golden age of superheroes, it's hard to go back and enjoy this on the same level given where we are now. Right. We were
0: starving back then and just having a prestige superhero show was enough reason to watch it. And now it's like I can watch so much other stuff.
1: Yeah. So it is a good show. It is still, I think, today a solid B. Mm-hmm. or me in, in, in the Chris book I would go and I'd write B
0: yeah I mm. think I think it's a, a I guess a fair uh, assessment and I'm glad we watched it but also definitely not in the a lot of some of these shows I watch and we go man I want to watch the rest of this I really dig it or I really remember this and I want to watch it
1: some more this is like
0: okay I'm glad we did this little kind of dip into it and
1: I think I can move on from it and just from a structural show point I think that we have us deciding to do three episodes each is the right number for this season. Yeah. Because after Agent Carter and doing this one, like we went one extra for Agent Carter because I really wanted to touch on the difference between season two and season one right. and the introduction of different characters. But the three episodes feels right. Like it's a solid chunk and easier to hit our, uh, our time marker almost. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there is that because certainly we kind of rushed through season two on Agent Carter, which is a shame because I genuinely liked how... Bonkers that show wins in
1: season two. So, I guess one of the things I'm thinking that we'll talk about live on air because I, I like to sure, hit you off guard with my ideas is that we limit it completely to first seasons, almost how we've instinctively done for these. Okay. So, if we want to go back later and then do like the best episodes of season two and talk about season two, and we can do a retrospect compared to season one to season two.
0: I think that's fair. Particularly with this run of shows that we're talking about because they do tend to change pretty significantly between scenes like you talked about with Agent Carter. It's almost better to kind of come back and talk about those again later because those are, they're not entirely different shows, but they're pretty close. Yeah. So yeah, let's just kind of keep it to three episodes in season one. I think it's a good metric going forward and then we'll break it as we always do when we need to.
1: Yeah, probably in two episodes. Right. But speaking, but of, Eddie, speaking of speaking of what Eddie, this this show has has eighteen great episodes. I know it's <laughs> twenty episodes, but we could do all eighteen. Come on. I will read
0: Wikipedia and we'll call it that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was my excited, uber excited nerd voice, by the way. Which Folks are welcome. If you want to hear us do more acting, please uh go and give us money. <laughs> we'll consider it. Uh,
0: uh, so, I had a segue, but it got ruined. So, now I just roll with it. What are you watching next time, Chris?
1: Me stepping on your toes again. <laughs> next week. up oh, next episode. We'll do Jessica Jones, Season 1. Starting with Episode 1, a.k.a. Ladies' Night. Then we'll transition to Episode 7 of Season 1, a.k.a. Top Shelf Perverts. And round it out with Season 1, Episode 9, a.k.a. (laughs) Sinbin. Oh, Jessica Jones I love. I can't wait to talk about this one. Uh, I I don't like noir. I don't like whiskey or drinking. So I think talking about Jessica Jones is going to be very difficult. It's going to be hard for you, I can tell.
0: Uh, So if uh, folks want to talk to you about noir online, where would they find you?
1: You can find me at Darker underscore hue on Twitter. You can come into the Discord. Or if you want, you can wait for the next episode, or I promise to try to step on Eddie's toes four or five times per show. Uh,
0: I look forward to that. You can find me on Twitter at Pugsteady, P U G S T A D Y. I'm just ignoring you now. You can find my website at pugsteady.com. Uh, you can find this shambles of a podcast online. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, including our, our the genreless and speechless uh, Discord channels, we've actually uh, had one of our old special guests, Eric Conley, is actually now in the Discord too. So, um, you know, happy to kind of talk about last season and also other stuff too. So, I mean, feel free to come in, hang out, and chat. Uh, but otherwise, we'll catch you next week with Jessica Jones. Talk to you later. Peace.